Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to episode 10 of the ZappaCast for February of 2013. Happy New Year to ZappaCast listeners and Zappa fans everywhere from the ZappaCast team. In this episode, we're going to have part two of what will wind up now being a four-part roundtable discussion between myself and Professor Mick Eakers, the Reverend Andrew Greenaway, and young Master Scott Fisher, and we're going to be talking about the One Size Fits All album. And one of the reasons for this is that we wanted to bring your attention to my new book, which is called uh, The Return of Rondo Hatton, The Recordings of Frank Zappa, Volume 5, 1974 to 1975, which is now available from SPB Publishing and also from Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all kinds of other retailers. And just wanted to throw in that little plug. So without further ado, here we are with part two of our roundtable discussion. We're talking one size fits all right here on the ZappaCast. Okay, so the next album that we should discuss is One Size Fits All, which... Uh Recorded in um, between December of 74 and April of 75 at the record plant and uh, at Caribou in Colorado, which was uh, owned by former Mothers of Invention, James William Gersio, and uh, also at Paramount in L.A. One Size Fits All, gentlemen. This is my favorite studio album. I was just thinking about the, the Roxy album. Is that where Frank got the bug for, uh, you know, throughout the 80s and... Uh, the late seventies, he was pretty much used in the uh, uh, venues as a studio, wasn't he? Most of his recordings uh, were, you know, were based on live recordings. You know, the Shaky Booty is an obvious example. I just wondered if uh, you know Roxy was the one where he thought, yeah, I can play. You know, I, I can put together musicians who can play that well. I might as well just record it and you know forget about studios. It's interesting that he did then go to studios to record One Size Fits All and. Uh, but then Bongo's Alive album, parts of Zoot Allure's Alive. Yep. Uh, yeah, is that we're in New York, Shake Your Booty. There's all obviously the contractual, uh, the, the Warner Brothers albums, the Sleep Dirts, and that are obviously just yep. bits and pieces recorded throughout that period, aren't they? As and when. Yeah, I guess Roxy must have been the first time that he'd, he'd used it in that kind of way, because he had overdubbed live recordings before. Yeah. You know, notably uh, a piece like tears or a song like tears began to fall on the on the pencil front album that was um uh obviously uh overdubbed in in the backing vocals you can hear it at the end um but yeah i think i think you're right and that that um held was held over into one size fits all so you have um pieces that uh at least in part are recorded um are recorded live, like notably the guitar solos in um, Inca Roads. Inca right. Roads, yeah. And uh, let's see, was the uh, was the guitar solo in Florentine Pogan recorded in that way? Let's see. I gotta look here. Oh no, that was all basic track. That's all um, from the KCT token of of uh, extreme uh, special. Yeah. But yeah, they they. Um, I can't remember if there's a lot of um, overdubs on on that material as far as the KCET stuff goes. There obviously are some, but he did have good, you know, probably 16 track uh, um, tapes of that material. So I think uh, that was uh, beneficial to him. But one size fits all. Yeah, it's it's um, 
de- definitely. Um, I would think this is, you know, if, if I was asked to what my favourite Zappa albums are, it's um, Hot Bats and One Size Fits All will always be in the top three. But yeah. One Size Fits All is always there. And like, like most people do, you know, yeah. Number I, three I, four, I think you're right on it, Andrew. Yeah. On a daily basis. Certainly in the top ten, anyway. Yeah, well, top five, easy. Top five, probably. I, I Again, I, I, sorry, I'm, I'm back online now, and I know where I am again, but I can remember when I first heard Inca Roads, and again, my jaw just dropped. Yeah, at what was going on there and the way the vocals were happening and just and then going into that one of the most one of my favourite guitar solos ever mind blowing track that one it's not a, not a duff track on there really is the album it? not really what's a better guitar solo though the Helsinki one that's on the album or the um, or the KCT solo that's on um, Dubrum Special I believe for Anchor Roads do you think he made the right choice by not using that original solo I don't know <laughs> I, I Inca Roads as it is now, it just again, it's one of those tracks that I just sort of know, and it's part of my DNA, and I, I can't think anything would improve it really. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think you're right about that. Inca Roads just one of those obviously monstrous songs, so uh, you know you just can't. Uh, it evolved quite a bit, probably over a year being played on stage, it, it had evolved quite a bit, but. Uh, I would think that that would have been one of the harder harder pieces for Ruth to play, because Frank was always, if you listen to to show tapes from the time, he he would quite often go after her for not playing it correctly. <laughs> so uh, you know, it, I, I'm not sure that I usually can hear much difference, but uh, yeah, he didn't seem to think that he that she played it. Although he obviously had a great deal of affection for Ruth, he he didn't feel that she played Inca Rhodes in particular um, very well or consistently I guess but I mean, who could who could blame her you know it's a pretty difficult piece to play to put it mildly what was your um, first experience of one size fits all professor you bought the time I'm sure I bought it at the time on vinyl I, you know I cannot actually remember I, I just remember being amazed by it and playing it an awful lot I think I'd got a new hi-fi at the time as well, which made it one of the sort of one of the albums I would always use to sort of demonstrate to my friends. Look, I've got these new JBL speakers. Listen to this, and so I did that. But uh, yeah. the the exact circumstance of how I came to buy it, I would have just seen it coming, gone down to my local record shop and bought it probably as soon as it came out. Yeah, that um, I believe that again, it was in the old masters box three. So, but I'd I'd actually already heard a lot of the stuff prior to that. Just from uh, bootlegs, you know. I'll say right. it here and now. I'd heard a lot of the stuff on, you know, um, from things like the mystery box bootleg and stuff like that prior to that, or bootleg videos that I'd gotten and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's a monstrous, monstrously good album, as they say, and it's a lot of people's favorite band, the Fall '74 band, the kind of slimmed down version of the Roxy group. That's a lot of people's favorite band. Yeah. Really nice to hear Johnny Watson on it as well. Yeah, uh, it's nice to have him. Yep, make a cameo. Um, my favorite band will probably always be the original Mother's Invention. It's just that's the first stuff that I listen to. But yeah, that if if somebody were to say that the the Fall '74 band that recorded One Size Fits All was the greatest Zappa lineup ever, it would be hard to argue with that. And they obviously liked each other. Hmm. Exactly how these, you know, um, 
probably the best band. And yeah, you, you think about the '98 band, really good band, but they didn't have that same interplay, like you say. You know, right. they weren't friends. They weren't. It was just they were hired musicians. Whereas the Roxy band, they did seem more of a uh, a unit that were, yeah. like you say. I, I would think they probably got on better than the original Mothers did. Yeah. Although the original so. Mothers had sort of you know maybe Motorhead and everyone had fun together, but I think there was probably still tension between the band. Oh, yeah, and Frank, that there wasn't in this band because everybody knew what they were doing. Nobody had a real attitude. No, nobody thought they were part of a band. They knew they'd been hired for a long-term contract, and so it was a different attitude. So everyone was just quite happy to go with it. There was no worry about getting sacked. You know, Although different Frank, sort of thing. Frank did argue, though, that uh, and and it, it always baffled me, but he would say that they were uh, uh, a very boring lineup for him that he argued that they were always playing chess and he always tried to yes them. Is that, is that the pajama? Is that, isn't that where pajama people comes from yeah that's chess. right that's exactly right yeah yep i thought yeah yeah that's that's absolutely true i think uh frank did not uh necessarily like the <laughs> the kind of um you know the the more boring he wanted it to be more lively i guess I don't know i guess you're right about that like as far as the if you're comparing them to the 88 band or any, or any of those other bands. I mean, Frank, generally speaking, would have the best time with people that, A, he genuinely liked, obviously, but B, that would make life interesting on the road. Um, the 88 band tended to make life interesting for Frank, sometimes for all the wrong reasons. As you well know, Andrew, the author of Zappa the Hard Way, now available in paperback. And, uh, <laughs> and an e-book soon as well. <laughs> an e-book? Is it an e-book yeah. now? Not yet, soon, very soon. Oh, good. Well, I'll get it for the nook then. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the sort of, the, people wonder why, you know, you would, Frank would, uh, release so much material from a band like the, the 1984 band. Um, I think it was just because he enjoyed the tour. He had, uh, really good personal interplay with the musicians and, for the most part, and, and enjoyed, he had a lot of really high quality recordings of that material and he just enjoyed the tour. I would say, I think he, he actually stated that was part of the reason because he had, you know, great digital recordings of the. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's the main thing. He, he would have rejected a lot of, of his other road tapes because, you know, there just wasn't so much that was recorded that quality. There weren't so many good mobile studios around in those days. He didn't have one on every gig. And so you'd get the occasional things like the Helsinki concert. And that was recorded fairly primitively, I think, as well. Yeah, was that 16 or something? Probably 8-track, maybe? 16-track. 16 16-track. 16 yeah. Yeah, this is fairly, you know, a good a good live recording, but, um, yeah, fairly primitive by those uh, by those standards. Yeah, you um, mentioned on the sleeve notes the equipment was always breaking down, full of hums and buzzes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. If you listen to a lot of the live tapes from that period, they always had problems uh, with the PA, they always had problems with the monitors. Um, and in, I guess in the case of a, a piece like Inca Roads, um, Ruth appears, at least in the, in the, uh, on the live tapes, to have a lot of problems hearing what was going on on stage because of the poor monitors that they had. Um, you know, there were always adjustments being made in mid-show and stuff like that. Stuff you would never hear about today. And it's yeah. almost a shame, you know. I, I get, I miss the days when people would ask for the monitors to be turned up. But that's just me. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Everyone's got their own mix in their own little headphones now anyway. 
their own total personal mix and their own personal monitor mixer usually. Yeah, doesn't that destroy improvisation to a certain extent? I think I think it's got to really mess up the dynamics. You know, if you're if you're listening to your own mix and you're kind of in your own world. Yeah. You know. It, you know. Everyone thinks they're the soloists because they'll make themselves the loudest instrument in the mix. I think it's not good. People have said the Grateful Dead went to pieces when they went to in monitors. Yeah, that's what but, I'm referring to specifically. Yeah. They and yeah. and I think to a certain extent that's true. Uh, Mr. Fisher, what was your initial encounter with One Size Fits All? Well, uh, again, uh, a late comer to the to the discography, so circa '94 uh, was going through and making my weekly purchase of, and you know uh, absorbing every note I could on on each of the releases. When I got to One Size Fits All, just as everyone else has said, uh, this this one was was the big one. Uh, um, uh, I would definitely agree with Andrew. This is my favorite studio release. And it's funny to distinguish with Frank between live and studio, because as we talked about, Roxy or even Fillmore, them being live albums, we, we could talk about the studio moments. And just with this album, we could talk about the live moments that, that occur. So it, it, it gets a bit incestuous. But um, One Size Fits All uh, really brought it all home for me. Uh, and Inca Rhodes, that first track in particular, to me, uh, once again, to, to branch outside of Zappa, it's not only my favorite Frank tune, it's my favorite tune. Uh, it has everything for me. I'm a big sci-fi alien geek, so I <laughs> love the content. And, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm really big into vocals and singing and, um, so the melody and, uh, and the way in which George executes that just blows me away. I love it. I love the never-ending uh, phrasing in a sentence and how it's just, uh, you know, such a long run-on sentence. And then when you get past that and, you know, there's a heck of a jam and a heck of a solo, but some of those parts, again, you talked earlier about putting in, with Bebop Tango, putting in notes um, for notes sake and just to be difficult. And it's just this one, he really seemed to fine tune his skills where he he had all those notes in there, but melodically, mm-hmm. boy, do they work! It just it sings. It's one of those things that with other guitarists at Evangelion, where if you can uh, find yourself humming along to every note of a solo or an instrumental section, that should tell you something of the uh, the way that the author or the writer was able to compose that and to me Rhodes just summed all of that up and when he talks on what was it Zappa in New York mm-hmm. and refers to this being one of his uh, you know uh, worst selling albums it, it just boggles my mind it proves that uh, I remember reading that I was amazed by that right it, it, it proves that it, it doesn't all have to do with commercial potential is that it doesn't mean much when this album means so much to to me personally. Yeah, and it it um, sounds even better now because they've they've actually gone back. By the way, that for those of you who haven't bought the universal version of it, they have gone back to the original vinyl um, uh, master, and yeah. it sounds just you know it's the definitive version of the album. Just anything, uh, yeah. But I tend to say that about anything that Frank originally issued on vinyl you know that would be the definitive version 
And um, also, by the way, um, uh, the Inca Rhodes lyric was apparently inspired by the book uh, Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken. So uh, that's uh, which kind of lays it all out there. The um, uh, the idea that these uh, aliens may have landed in the Andes for uh, um, you know for reasons unknown. That's pretty much what the inspiration for that. Are, are you sure that's not so much? An inspiration as a response to? I don't, I don't think. Well, it might be a response. I think Frank has yeah, been very be. satirical about New Age people believing all this stuff. I believe. Yeah, I it's interesting. He was actually, you know, I don't think he was an Eric Danikin fan. Oh no! <laughs> See, I would think. Uh, um, yeah, you're probably right about that. Given that, I always just t- took it as sort of face value, but you're probably right about that. No, it's I, a think, response. I think not. I think it's definitely a response to all the the New Age. California people who were buying this stuff. Yeah, see, but I don't remember the I, book. I'm not disillusioning anyone there. Oh, no, no. I I, uh, <laughs> I actually don't remember the book when it came out, so I was a bit young. But, uh, you know, I, I heard of the book later, but, uh, yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Did Frank actually read it, though? Because he, he, in other interviews, he claims that he wasn't a big reader, didn't used to read much. I think Gail's the reader, isn't she, in the family? Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I don't know. Would you, well, it wouldn't surprise me that that uh, Gail read it, but.
the rabbit, 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 the rabbit,
Thank you. Uh, Can't Afford No Shoes, which was originally called Ralph Stuffs His Shoes. Does anybody happen to know what it was with Ralph's shoes that was so interesting? I didn't know that. (laughs) I don't know if anybody's ever asked anybody in the band. There was sort of a running joke in the Fall 74 band about um, Ralph Humphrey, and um, these jokes would generally be aimed at Chester. But uh, I can't really, you know, the, the... the humor, obviously the band got a, a a kick out of sort of saying things about Ralph like that, but I'd never been able to figure out what Ralph Stuffs His Shoes was about. But later on it became Can't Afford No Shoes. You know, that's um, contrast and relief, right, between uh, Inca Roads and Sofa. Yeah, more straight ahead. Oh, hey, Lord, I'm a 
Oh, well, I guess that brings us to Sofa, then, which we have twice on the album in in, um, in vocal and non-vocal versions. I, I will say that along with Strictly Genteel, it's one of my favorite Frank melodies. I was just going to say that, Scott. Well, yeah, glorious melody, isn't it? Very moving. I want to start it's, singing it now, you know. Da, 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 da. You just can't uh, just hear it, yeah. Do, do, do any of the rest of you find it odd that, that this album, with having all the imagery that Cal... Um, did uh, along with Frank's guidance uh, with the front cover uh, with the sofa and going back to those old flow and Eddie days where they actually had uh, so much more theater and so much more of a story based around the sofa and all of that kind of disappeared by the time it got to this album. How do you mean? Um... Well, the Devon and the, the magical pig and all of the, um, the uh, stories that Frank would tell on stage involving this sofa that, that meant so much to him and all of the uh, German wording. And by the time that it finally reached its studio or its, its quote-unquote official release, um, you, you're, it's, I hate to use the word diluted because sofa is, as we all know, a work of art, but it, it's diluted to an instrumental version and our German lyrics, but so many of those the floor bedecking lyrics that we uh, mm. we know from the bootlegs over the years, um, a lot of that and stick it out later in Joe's Garage got lost um, along the way. Yeah, it's it it's interesting because it, it, it has been, and I've seen this in at least one book. Suggest maybe it was the I don't know if it was the Miles book. Um, trying to think of what book it was, but 
suggested that that maybe um, Frank felt that, um, and I have no idea what the basis for thinking this would be, that maybe the uh, Devon material was too blasphemous, perhaps, and that it brought a lot of the uh, winter 71 misfortunes upon him. I read that somewhere once. I, But in Frank's career, did did he ever seem that concerned about blasphemy? No, not <laughs> I really. I believe that, really. <laughs> yeah, I actually, somebody put that in a book. But and that always that always uh, um, it's interesting that he never did put that piece out, even though he had um, an entire version of the Devon sweep that he could have used in, um, say, the stage series. He only used the beginning of it. Once upon a time, um, it's interesting. You say you know he, he was sensitive to things. You know, going back to the Roxy, uh, Dickie's such an asshole. We didn't release that for years, did he? So you know, there yep. were moments where he suddenly thought, mm, maybe I shouldn't release that. Maybe I, yeah. But I, I guess his long-term plan was to get it all out at some point. Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, he he did authorize a version of that suite to be released on in the Beat the Boots series. It, it, that did come out during his lifetime, but yeah, yeah. Just a little interesting aside. I once read that in a book that uh, apparently, you know, maybe Frank felt that um, the his ill fortune might have been due to that. It's a little silly to think about, but. There you go. Um, <laughs> I find that very hard to believe. I think. Yeah, I've always had a hard time <laughs> wrapping my brain around that stuff. Considering, you know, the, certainly Frank wasn't one on thinking of divine retribution. I don't think. No, not much. <laughs> <laughs> And 
clue number three. I still don't know who you are, though. Well, I was going to give you the clue anyway. It doesn't matter with a response like that. Clue number three. Now, these are for the people standing right in front of the vocal PA mic. He's been marooned. Oh, I hear you say so. Once upon a time, way back a long time ago, way back when the universe consisted of nothing more elaborate than Mark Maroon trying to convince each and every member of this audience here tonight that it was nothing more, nothing less than a fat maroon sofa suspended in the midst of a vast emptiness. A light shineth down from heaven. And who should appear but the good Lord himself and his faithful St. Bernard, Wendell. And he was feeling fine that day. And if there's one thing that he could use, it would be a nice sofa for him and Wendell. And he looked at the sofa and he said unto himself, this sofa is all right, except that what it needs is a floor. And so in order to obtain the floor, he consulted with the celestial corps of engineers and addressed them formally with a little song in Deutsch, because that's the way he talks whenever it's heavy business, take it away, God. Give to me
aus den Ohren zittern, meine Augen kommt das Herren. A light shines down from heaven. A dense ecumenical patina at the right hand of God's big sofa. And the Lord put aside his huge cigar and considered it was time now to entertain himself on that heavenly afternoon with the sofa, Wendell, his girlfriend, who was a little bit short, and her assistant squatted the magic pig, and he didn't like this.
sand. And the Lord causes the short girl to kneel and to make mysterious gestures near the reproductive orifice of the squat, the magic pig, and proceeded to broadcast her pure, sweet voice throughout his greatest new PA system all over the Alps and everything. And for our boys in uniform, that means fuck me swine until my orchestra blows dark gas, sparks shoot out, and nebulas are revealed, along with shoots of fire. Uh, we discussed pajama people before. That's another kind of um, nice little song to to throw in there. And I guess that was about some of his experiences with the um, uh, the less uh, exciting band members on the road, right? That's what we were saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The name of this song is Pajama People. Thank you. 
some people's cold, yeah, yeah. and some people's not. There is room to be whole. I tell you, some people do it, and some see right through it. But somewhere pajamas, if only they knew it. The pajama people are boring me to pieces. They make me feel like I am losing my mind. They all got flat all up and down them. A little trapped all back behind them. And some cozy little phrase on their mind. They all pajama people. Pajama people. Lord, they make you sleepy with the things they might say. Pajama people. Pajama people. I wish they'd all go away. Pajama people, it's a pajama people special. Save a dollar right now and take one home with you today. Pajama people, wow. Pajama people, people. Wrap them up, roll them out, get them out of my way. Wrap them up, roll them out, get them out of my way. Wrap them up, roll them out, and get them out of my way. Wrap them up.
Lord, they make you sleepy with the things they might say. Pajama people, a check. Pajama people, I wish they'd all go away. Pajama people, pajama people, people. Make a deal right now and take one home with you today. Pajama people, pajama people, wrap them up. Roll them out, get them out of my way. Wrap them up, roll them out, get them out of my way. Wrap them up, yes, yes, yes. Roll them out, yes, yes. Get them out of my way. Wrap them up, roll them out. Want to play a game of chess? Yeah. We'd like to thank you very much for coming to our concert tonight, Get ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. It has been Ruth Underwood's great pleasure to play with all of her little machinery for you. Napoleon Murphy Brock has had a wonderful time clapping his hands, playing the saxophone, and jumping all over the stage. Chester Thompson smiled three times and played a drum solo. Tom Fowler hopes that he's going to get some nookie tonight and enjoy playing the bass for you. Meanwhile, George the Trish Duke lives in fear of the next great dame to run next to him. Thank you very much for coming to the show. We hope you enjoyed it. What can I say? We hope you enjoyed it. What can I say? We hope you enjoyed it. Wow. What can I say? What can I say? I can't say anything. Can't say anything either. So what can I say? 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 And then that leads into Florentine Pogan, one of my favorite songs. Just a killer, killer riff, and uh, I have uh, very little idea what it's supposed to be about, but, uh, you know. The biscuit was the uh, inspiration, wasn't it, supposedly? The biscuit. Yes, the airline biscuit. Come on, Mick, tell me your story. Oh, right then, I was just building well, up. You have me. a story. I do. <laughs> um, for, for my sins, um, my grandson now calls me Wooler. Because huh? when he was learning to speak, one of the first words he said, for some reason, just making up sounds, and he said, Wooler, sounding just like Napoleon in Florentine Pogan. <laughs> so I recorded the little introduction to that, sort of, Wooler, on my phone. Mm-hmm. And whenever I went to see him, I'd, we'd play the Wooler game, and I'd play him this track, and he'd eventually got the hang, went to so say Wooler. But now that has become my name. So I am now not Grandad, I am just Wooler. And even his mum and dad have started calling me that as well. So I think I'm probably stuck with it. So thanks, Frank. Thanks, Napoleon. I know it's my own fault. But, uh, there you go. And I love that song to pieces. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a just it's an unbelievable um, example of Frank as riff master, I think. You know, it's a showcase primarily for Napoleon. But, you know, it's just so sleazy sounding. You know, I love it. It's great. And one of the first Frank pieces that I learned to play on guitar. Not that it's very difficult, you know, necessarily to play, but you know, it's a relatively simple, easy to understand kind of uh, musical piece. 
did you teach yourself or did you use the transcription? The oh no, I taught myself. Right. You know, I I um you know, I did the the frank thing of uh, later of going to the library and trying to educate myself and how to read music, but uh but yeah, as far as some of those early things that I I worked out, I just worked them out by watching. Actually, I, it was helpful to be able to watch the KCET TV stuff because that, you know, there's pretty good shots of him playing some of these pieces so you know not that i can still understand what he was doing with uh you know some of his his guitar styles and modes and things like that but um you know but then again i don't think anybody can but this this song is pretty straightforward so this is not terribly difficult but it's a fun song to play anyway Barber might court her. Nah, nah, nah. 
Hello and welcome to Zappa's Gear, the section of the ZappaCast dedicated to Frank Zappa's guitars, amplifiers, effects units and other musical devices. Today I'm going to be looking at another one of Frank Zappa's signature electric guitars, the famous Roxy SG, so-called because it appeared prominently on the cover of the Roxy and Elsewhere album. The Roxy SG was in fact Frank's second Gibson SG special. He'd used one earlier with the vaudeville band with Flo and Eddie, but this got destroyed in the famous fire at the Montreux Casino. The Roxy SG started life as a cherry red Gibson SG special, manufactured in 1963, and Frank bought it second-hand sometime in 1971 or 1972. We don't know exactly where he bought it from, but it had certainly been well used. Frank said that when he first got it, the frets were all beat up on it, it was broken in just right. The Gibson SG range had been introduced in 1960 to replace the Les Paul guitars, which, believe it or not, were not selling very well at that time. The SG, or solid guitar, had a distinctive double-pointed cutaway mahogany body, a 24 and 3 quarter inch 22 fret mahogany set neck with a rosewood fingerboard. The body was considerably lighter than the Les Paul, the neck was slimmer, and the double cutaways gave unfettered access to the higher frets. The first two models introduced were the standard and deluxe versions, which had two and three humbucker pickups respectively. The SG Special was introduced in 1961 and was essentially an economy version of the standard model. The Special had two black P90 single coil pickups, dot inlays on the fingerboard, a pearl Gibson logo on the headstock and nickel hardware. The electronics consisted of a volume and tone control for each pickup and a three-way pickup selector switch which was mounted into the body. Some players preferred the cheaper P90 pickups because they had a sharper and more incisive tone than the regular Gibson humbuckers. When Frank took the SG on the road on the Putty Wazoo tour, the only modification that had been made was that the vibrato unit had been removed and the tailpiece replaced with a fixed unit, and this was possibly done before Frank even bought the guitar. The Roxy SG, as it came to be known, like many of Frank's guitars, was to go through a series of changes over the years, to such an extent that some people think it is two different guitars. In 1973, he replaced the P90s with a pair of black DiMarzio dual-sound humbucker pickups, and added two coil-tap switches to the pickguard on the lower horn of the body. These could effectively convert each pickup to single-core wiring, like the originals. Later on, Frank had a Gibson Deluxe Vibrato unit fitted, and at some time in 1974, the cherry red lacquered finish was removed, showing the natural mahogany of the body, and the black headstock paint was also removed. It's likely that this work coincided with the neck being shaved to a thinner profile. As far as we know, the electronics were left as standard, apart from the pickup switches that I've mentioned. It was in this form that the guitar appeared on the cover of the Roxy and Elsewhere album, and the guitar henceforth became known as the Roxy SG, and it continued to be his main instrument for the next year or so. I asked Napoleon Murphy Brock, the singer and saxophone player with the band at the time, if Frank used any other guitars on stage. He said, In my memory, it was usually the Gibson. He loved the sound of that one. It was more versatile than a Telecaster, but could also do what a Telecaster could do. 
Here's an example of Frank stretching out on the Roxy SG on a track called Merely a Blues in A, recorded in Paris in 1974, which can be found on the album Frank Zappa Plays the Music of Frank Zappa.
spoke to Dweezil Zappa earlier on this year and I asked him which of Frank's guitars had made the biggest impression on him when he was a child. Well, when I was 12, that's when I got really, really interested in it. You know, prior to that, I mean, I, I was aware of what he played. I, the SG was the most prevalent, you know, uh, through the 70s. So that was really the, the, the guitar that had the biggest uh, impact on me. Well, the baby um, snakes. Uh, with well, well, the Roxy one, one yeah. you know, uh, which went through a couple of different phases. Uh, oddly enough, there's very few pictures of it with the uh, mirror pickguard on it because the the, yes. the mirror SG, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've I don't think I've ever even seen any photos of him playing it uh, with the mirror. No, I've seen about one picture, and it's yeah. No, I mean the thing is, yeah. the whole guitar has mirror on the front yeah. of it, you know. So. Uh, but it is the Roxy guitar because apparently uh, TWA had uh, damaged the guitar and it had a crack through the body and all this stuff. And so he put a mirror pickguard over the thing. Um, you know, um, and he stopped playing that one because he said it wouldn't stay in tune anymore. Um, but uh, that was the one that I uh, saw him play the most before it got the mirror pickguard. And then I don't really remember seeing him play it with the mic, uh, the, the, mirror pick guard uh too much uh i mean but it was always around at the yeah. studio as dweezil said the guitar was badly damaged by an airline company and frank had an acrylic mirror scratch plate fitted which covered the whole of the front of the body at the same time the electronics and hardware were upgraded to frank zappa's typical 1980s preferences a new twin battery compartment was built in fitted with a plain black plastic cover the vibrato unit was removed and a fixed tailpiece and harmonica-style bridge were fitted. The original tuners were replaced with sealed shallow units and the black Dimarzios replaced with two white humbuckers, probably custom-wound Seymour Duncan models. The active electronics consisted of two parametric EQs for the bridge and net pickups, a master volume and what looks like a blend control. There's a small on-off switch for the EQ circuit and a large pickup selector switch with a star surround. Back in January this year, Dweezil told me that he'd been talking to Gibson about the possibility of them making a signature copy of the guitar, and it appears this has finally come to fruition. Gibson had produced the initial prototype in pretty much exactly the same state as it was on the cover of the Roxy and Elsewhere album, and Dweezil is going to be road-testing the guitar on his current ZPZ tour. From the photographs I've seen, it looks a very handsome instrument indeed. So let's hope that they finally make it into production and you'll be able to see a copy at your local guitar shop sometime next year. Well, that's just about enough from me for this edition of the ZappaCast, so I'll hand you back to Scott and Andrew. If this sort of thing is interesting to you, please do check out the Zappa's Gear website, dedicated to the Zappa's Gear book that I'm currently writing. Um, that's at zappersgear.com, and you can also follow Zappa's Gear on Twitter. Okay, guys, one more time for the world. Evelyn, a modified dog. Just a little piece, except it does use ARF, of course. Arf, yes. Yeah, that's another one of my personal favorites off the album, just yeah. a uh, Frank's ability with words to describe a, uh, albeit an obtuse scene, uh, just one that, one of those ones that on your first listen, you have no clue what he's talking about, 
And after years and years of listening to it, uh, just what a great vision through the, through the eye of a dog, you know? <laughs> yeah. I always associate it, maybe it's because I came into the picture so late, but I always associate it with the dog on the cover of Them or Us. Just, just, you know. Yeah, I, I wonder if he was familiar with the guy's art before, before he used it on those albums, because it's on, it's three albums, isn't it? Have the Francesco, yeah. Yeah, Them Francesco. Us. And, uh, what would be the other one? Perfect Stranger. Perfect Stranger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. It's got that same vibe, you know. It, and it, isn't it on the old masters as well? Or the, uh... Yes, as a matter. Yeah, same guy did the old master yeah. stuff. Um, it has that same vibe. I don't know. It could be a conceptual continuity um, unit. I suppose. I've always assumed the dog on the on Francesco was called Evelyn. You know, I thought, oh, that's what Evelyn looks like. Called, I just called Patricia. Oh, that's right, Patricia. That's, Patricia, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Learning something new here. Evelyn, a modified dog, viewed the quivering fringe of a special doily, draped across the piano with some surprise. In the darkened room where the chairs dismayed and the horrible curtains muffled the rain, she could hardly believe her eyes. A curious breeze, a garlic breath, which sounded like a snore. Somewhere near the Steinway, or even from within, had caused the doily fringe to waft and tremble in the gloom. Evelyn, a dog, having undergone further modification, pondered the significance of short-person behavior in pedal-depressed, panchromatic resonance and other highly ambient domains. Arf, she said. One of my all-time favorite Frank Zappa songs, Sam Bernardino, which features Johnny Guitar Watson. And Captain Beefheart. And Captain Beefheart. Bloodshot Rolling Red yeah. on, uh, on harmonica. Obviously, another piece that um, another lyric that um, looks back on his time, um, perhaps less fondly, in Tank C. <laughs> you know, I, w- I wasn't aware of um, Captain Beefheart, Andrew. Where? Uh, Play where's harmonica. He? Yep. Under ah. Bloodshot, Rolling Red. Oh, again, uh, due to uh, uh, the label. Uh, restrictions. He changed his name. Yeah. Yep. I never, okay. I never picked up on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it isn't that interesting though that he could appear on Bongo Fury under his own name, and that was maybe what four months later that album came out. Yeah. We talked. To, I mean, he was probably still under contract to about twenty different people. I think, by all accounts, Frank took pity on him because he was absolutely, you know, had no money at all and couldn't record. I think, you know, I don't know how he managed to. Well, in fact, that. Wasn't that partly the reason, Andrew? Can you remember why the album was not available in the UK? Uh, Bongo Fury. Was it not? No, we had to buy it on import. Yeah, right, yeah. I I was going to say that, but um, I think it was all because of the Warners thing, wasn't it? It was all the Warners was coming to a head. He was actually... um, Frank had met Richard Branson, was going to try and do a deal with Richard Branson, sign with Virgin. Um, Because I think Beefheart had some deal with Virgin as well. And then Warners got wind of it and that's when it, you know, it all just uh, escalated out of that, as I understand it. 
so yeah, we uh, so like you, <laughs> like me, Mickey, went and bought it on the import from yeah. uh, Virgin Megastore in Oxford. Yeah, it was from a Virgin Megastore, actually. <laughs> yes, indeed. We bought the two copies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they had imports uh, coming back. But yeah, the um, yeah, I think it is. Well, yeah, I guess he must have extricated himself from all those contracts then by that time. Because, like I said, I think it was only maybe a four month difference or five month difference at most between the release of One Size Fits All and, and the yeah. release of Bongo Fury. He, I don't think he was credited on Zoot Laws, was he? Or not his, not by his, uh, you know, his, his, his name that everyone knows and loves him. Was it just Donny Vleet on there? Oh, he plays on Zoot Allures as well, doesn't he? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I really, you know, just San Bernardino is one of those songs that, you know, I just don't get sick of for some reason. It's got a killer riff, interesting little uh, bits of arrangement all over the place. And, you know, Johnny Guitar Watson making his first appearance in a uh, on a Zappa track. And that, uh, you know, he's amazing there. And it's just all around a uh, great piece of of uh, music great rock and roll song Yeah. 
Um, then the last monster piece on the album would be Andy, which is, once again, another of my favorite Frank Zappa songs. Gentlemen, I present to you Andy. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're saying, the, I mean, Inca Road, Florentine Pogan and Andy, um, every cover band plays those songs. It's just, uh, you know, we've talked about every track as being our favorite or something. This is, yeah. 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 An album, three songs like that, plus Sofa, plus San Bedino, you know. Mm-hmm. What can you say? Oh, here's a, here's a question for you then. What, what is a better arrangement, the original 75 arrangement of Andy or the 88 version, which, you know, I think is just incredibly powerful? Bobby Martin does a great job. The horns uh, supply so much color. Mm-hmm. I'd still prefer the original. I, I tend to think the 88 band was was the best Zappa cover band that ever was. In that <laughs> that's, what, that's what Scott Cena said as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's where I got it from. Yeah. Did he say that? Yeah, he did yeah. say that. I knew it, no. People complained, yeah, made comments about Zappa plays Zappa, and he said, well, you know, that's all, that's all we were, really. We were just a cover band under Frank's <laughs> guidance. Oh, that's funny. Hey, there's a typical bit of Tunis humor for you. <laughs> but yeah, well, basically, I guess it's probably true. But um, but I still think the '88 band had a tremendous feel, you know, you know. And I I love listening to the stuff. But yeah, as far as going into deep catalog and all that kind of stuff, yeah, probably um, more retrospective. I guess the '88 band would be uh, in terms of their repertoire. If there is, I really wanna know. Is there anything good inside of you? If there is, I really wanna know. Is there anything good inside of you?
Do you know what I'm really telling you? Was there something that you can understand? Do you know what I'm really telling you? Was there something that you can understand? Do you know what I'm really telling you? Was there something that you can understand? Do you know what I'm really telling you? Was there something that you can understand? That's our show. Join us again next time where we'll be discussing the Bongo Fury album. Just wanted to give you a quick wrap up on what you heard in this episode. Uh, we heard Inca Roads and Can't Afford No Shoes from the concert on September 25th, 1974 at the Concert Husset in Gothenburg, Sweden. We heard the Devon Suite, which includes Sofa, from December 4th, 1971, at the Casino in Montreux, Switzerland, the infamous fire show. We heard uh, Pajama People, also from the September 25th, 1974 show in Gothenburg. We heard Florentine Pogan from October 1st, 1974, the early show at the Fest Hall Mustermess in Ball, Switzerland. We heard Evelyn, a modified dog from the One Size Fits All album. We use that because there is no live version extant of Evelyn, a modified dog. We heard Sam Berdino from uh, the Palladium in New York City on Halloween 1977, October 31st. It's from the new Baby Snakes film soundtrack release from the Zappa Family Trust. And we heard Andy from the concert at the Nouvelle Hippodrome in Paris on February 24th of 1979. That's our show. Thank you very much for listening. The ZappaCast was produced and edited by Scott Parker, Andrew Greenaway, and Mick Eakers. Be sure to check out Andrew's website at www.idiotbastard.com for all the latest Zappa news, and also to purchase Andrew's book, Zappa the Hard Way, the definitive account of the 1988 Frank Zappa Broadway The Hard Way Tour. For those of you interested in obtaining my Zappa books, my website is located at www.spbpublishing.webs.com. And if you order the books directly from me, I'll sign them for you. My books are also available from www.gnsmusic.com, purveyors of the finest Zappa merchandise anywhere, as well as www.amazon.com and many other right-thinking booksellers. And you should also check out Mick Eaker's excellent site on Frank's gear at www.zappasgear.com. 
If you wish to contact us, drop us a line at MOI1969, that's 1969, at SNET.net. On behalf of Andrew Greenaway and Mick Eakers, this is Scott Parker saying thank you again for listening. And until next time, good night, boys and girls. Thanks a lot. Good night.